This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. This episode contains mature content. Hey guys, welcome back to the Jen Hatmaker Book Club Podcast. You may be listening to this over on the regular podcast feed, so welcome you guys. Every month in the Jen Hatmaker Book Club, we get a dedicated interview with our author of that month, of that month's book selection. It's one of the best things about book club because we get to ask our actual personal individual questions and give our feedback. And I always just love it. We always feel like like the teacher's pet when we get to do this every month. Now, if you listen to the regular show for the For the Love podcast, you know that right now we're doing a little series talking all about sex, filled with super lighthearted topics around sex, right? Easy, breezy. Who struggles here, right? Like how, is this a complicated space for people? Of course not. Jokes, This is, that's sarcasm, fun. So this series is giving us the chance to unpack some of our questions even super hard and vulnerable ones that come with it. And then to layer on to those fire discussions we're having, I wanted book club this month to also talk about sex. I wanted to talk to someone who could help normalize sex for us and talk to us in frank and true and real ways. And as you know, we had the absolute delight to read this month's book, Come As You Are by the one and only Emily Nagoski, who I love. You may know that Emily is not a new face in the For the Love community. She's been on the show before. She's been in book club before with Burnout. She has offered so much guidance and comfort with her work and writing. She is an expert on women's sexual well-being and healthy relationships and also the prevention of sexual violence and harassment. And so I just mentioned burnout. She talks about unlocking the stress cycle in our lives, which we read two years ago in JHBC. Less stress equals better sex. It all comes full circle, right? So now in the revised and updated version of her book, Come As You Are, Emily is unlocking all of this for us. I love her. I love her work. And I totally love this book. So please welcome the extraordinary Emily Nagoski. All right. So delightfully, delightfully, I've got Emily Nagoski back. 
And she is one of our favorite people. Emily, you know, we did burnout in mm-hmm. book club maybe two years ago. And was it that are, long ago? Uh, you know, time got into a weird vacuum, but I think it was. Yeah. And we still use like burnout language, like shorthand in our sort of private Facebook group. We're still like somebody yeah. will say a thing and somebody else is just like, just go complete the cycle. I'm like, oh, oh yes. Yeah, huh, exactly. <laughs> That's our handbook for how to deal with stress. And now we have a new handbook for how to deal with sex. And it's incredible. Welcome back. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, let's let's get right into Come As You Are. I'm so impressed that book club would do Come As You Are. I mean, when I tell you, it was like all hands on deck. Like we, you know, meander through a historical fiction. Somebody would be like, Meh, I'm out on this. I, I'll, I'll, I'll catch the next one. Or we would have, you know, some type of memoir. I'm like, I'm not interested. This one, everyone's like, pull up a seat to the table. Here's my pen and paper. <laughs> and I am taking notes from the professor. It has been highly engaging month in our community talking about your book and everything that you're teaching us. And I want to start here first, if you don't mind. Can you tell us how this came to be? I mean, obviously, I see, I can kind of see a natural progression of your work, but can you walk us specifically how you got from sort of stress and anxiety in the body to now we're talking about sex? It actually went in the other direction. That's it went in the other direction. We started about sex and then found burnout. Yeah. I'm mm-hmm. primarily a sex educator by training. And it's been it's been 10 years now since I submitted the final draft of the original Come As You Are, which was published in 2015 in its original format. So blood, sweat, and tears into this book about the science of women's sexual well-being. And traveling all over, talking to anyone who would listen about the science of women's sexual well-being. And people kept coming up to me after my talks and being like, that sex science is great, but you know the part that really changed everything was that one chapter about stress and the cycle and relationships and feelings. And I was surprised, honestly. But I told that story to my sister and she was like, yeah, remember when you taught me that stuff when I was, you know, hospitalized twice? And mm. I was like, oh, right, we should write a book about that. So we wrote Burnout, and it came out, and the pandemic happened about a year after Burnout originally came out. And I had some time to update and revise. Sex science changes really fast. That's interesting. And why is that? Is it because it's such a relatively new field that people are finally paying attention to? Is that the, yes. the culprit? Mm-hmm. And A lot of sex science, because it's not like physics, it's cultural. A lot of the earliest sex research, particularly as I think about the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it's not great. Like from a methodological point of view, it's real good. But the way it talks about people who aren't white men, able-bodied and neurotypical is not good. So there's a lot of fixing the problems that's happening very gradually. Well, it's so encouraging. I'm so encouraged that so many minds who are more representative of humanity are turning their attention to all of this entire field. It's, I mean, that's, it's going to reverberate through generations. Cause I, 
I'm 48. So I still came up through the, what even was our sex ed? I mean, literally what even was it? It was so incomplete. It was so fragmented in my case. It had this layer of like purity culture on top of it. And I mean, what a mess. We're still unraveling. I had comparatively good high school sex education. You know, it was taught by the gym teacher. But the only thing I really remember is the exam. There was one question where it was multiple choice. The prompt was the withdrawal method. And (laughs) the correct answer was he's lying. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, dear. Well. In fairness. Oh, gosh. Someone in the Uh, class complained how gross uh, it was that the line drawing of genitals included pubic hair. (laughs) And my gym teacher, Mr. Landis, was like, but that's what that's what they look like. I mean, where Mr. Landis is not lying. Yeah, that is what it is. And you know what? When Come As You Are was originally I had to go through three copy edits because sex books and copy editors, they just (laughs) <laughs> it's just not a combination that works very well. And there's an illustration of a vulva in chapter oh, one gosh. Yeah. that you definitely saw. And yeah, there yeah, was yeah. a note from the copy editor. Can we please, italics, please, yeah, please remove some of the pubic hair? Oh, oh, well, wow. That is, okay, so that is not your domain, persists. my friend. <laughs> Ma'am, this might not be your department. Like, send me to the science, the science guys. It's so interesting how you've, been able to keep your hand on this book and kind of guide it into an updated like iteration after all these years. Like, I'm curious what your experience is from your readers, from the community between the beginning of like the, the initial offering to the world here has come as you are, which frankly was I feel pioneering, particularly in the way that you write, in the way that you instruct us, in the way that you coach us through and explain the science. And now, because delightfully, it seems like this conversation is becoming more and more visible. So some social media people were like, you want to promote things? You should be on TikTok, Emily. You should go on TikTok. Sex education is happening on TikTok as seg education. So I went on TikTok and I, I looked at some things and the first thing I saw was a video that talked about responsive desire. And I was like, ah, ah. some people are talking about responsive desire. The next video I saw was talking about this very niche. Do you remember the little monitor? Criterion velocity and the discrepancy reducing feedback loop. It's in the orgasm chapter. Now, that was on TikTok? That was on TikTok, helping people understand why they get frustrated, like why the frustration they experience as they try to have an orgasm is actually interfering with their ability to have an orgasm. And I was like, criterion velocity and the discrepancy reducing feedback loop is on TikTok? I'm dying. They've been listening. They've been listening. And just yesterday, my editor was telling me that she gets proposals for sex books sort of all the time because she is my editor. And most of them use Come As You Are as a comp title, and almost all of them talk about the brakes and accelerator. It's fantastic. And that, like, that science has been with me since, like, 1999. I love that science, but no, like, mainstream book has talked about it until Come As You Are started it in 2015. And now people kind of know. 
I mean, it's amazing. And honestly, in this case, imitation is truly the sincerest form of flattery because yeah. what that means is education. That means more people are understanding their bodies and how sex works in our bodies and our minds and our souls. And it's like, a, that's a win across the board. Like if every single one of them want to attempt to plagiarize your work, but cite you in it, I'm like, okay, I will take just all the help the I can get. I want everyone talking about this. Yeah. What do you see out there? Is there one or two pervasive narratives that you see that are harmful, inaccurate, all of it? There are several. The reason I made all those faces is because I was like ticking through a large number of them. So one of them obviously is like you say no, but your body says yes, which is why the arousal non-concordance chapter exists is to contradict that one myth, which is part of rape culture. Yeah, of course. As I was writing Come As You Are originally that, oh, there was a song about you say no, but your body says yes. With The video had like gold number balloons and I don't know. It was gross and it was an example of it. And so when I had the opportunity to give like a TED talk at actual big TED, that was the topic I chose to talk about because that was the one that is like, at the time, it was the dominant, really dangerous one. What has happened since then, the TED Talk was 2018, I think, is the rise of incels. And the mainstreaming in the sort of like manosphere of social media. So for example, right now, there's a YouTuber with like a million followers, million subscribers, who just self-published a book called Why Women Deserve Less. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. That. Oh, yeah. That's upsetting. So another thing I talk about in Come As You Are is that sex is not a drive. Sex is not a drive. It's not a biological drive. You're not going to die if you don't get laid. This is so easy to prove. The scientific consensus has been there for a while. No, though, in fairness, science was slow to figure this out because they too were clinging to patriarchal misogynist norms that like men need sex in order to be okay. But like they got there. Science looked at the evidence and was like, oh, okay, actually it's it's not a biological drive. But people in the manosphere are using this idea, this myth that sex is a biological drive. And if you don't meet it, you'll die as a way to denigrate and belittle women that they are denying men something they biologically need. There was an op-ed in the New York Times that unironically suggested that, you know what? All you social progressives want, like, distribution of goods so that, like, everybody has some. Why aren't we doing that with sex with women? Like, why aren't women stepping up and having sex with these dangerous, violent men to prevent them? From being dangerous and violent, because if they could just get laid, they would not be dangerous and violent. This is literally like the conversation people are having. That was in the New York Times? Yeah. I am flabbergasted by the premise. Well, so the point is. (laughs) So you asked what there's still work to be done. That, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the reasons I'm so freaking excited that y'all are looking at the book is that things are getting worse right now. We are in a bad moment around trans rights, around gay rights, around reproductive rights, reproductive rights, like a very dark moment where misogyny is rising. 
violence against the LGBTQIA2 plus community is rising. And I think a conversation that centers women's sexual pleasure is like a very moderate place to be having a conversation. People can have a conversation and feel confident talking about their own sexual pleasure, which makes it easier to recognize that, oh, everyone has a right to this. Everyone has a right to basic bodily autonomy. Everyone has a right to experience the pleasure their body is capable of experiencing. Hmm. Right. It seems like we shouldn't have to say that. And yet here we are. And you're completely right. And you're, I hadn't thought of that as a jumping off place for those larger discussions, but it does sort of come down to this common denominator of agency over our bodies. That's the through line here. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. Astapro is a first of its kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24 hour over the counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24 hour steroid free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. So get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Astapro and go. One thing that, at least in my community, that women are saying have they've been finding so comforting as they read through Come As You Are is that you're absolutely obsessed with getting across this idea that what we feel is normal and it's okay and it's perfectly fine. Just the amount of messages we have heard the opposite of that our whole lives. It's really hard to reverse. This is a tough reversal. There's just, I know this is like, this has been said so many times, but just the expectations that are put on the shoulders of girls, young girls, and then of course we grow up with it, is just so disorienting and confusing and shame-based. And so we spit out on the other end feeling like, oh, I'm the opposite of normal. Like I just didn't hit all those marks, whatever the marks were that were handed to us. And something is wrong with me. You are both not virtuous and pure enough and also not slutty and sexy enough. It's so, how do we thread the needle, man? Like, And the thing is like, because you're failing no matter what you do, you can let it go. You're never going to win. So don't play the stupid game. Oh, I love this. I love this. That came through loud and clear. That is clearly one of your thesis statements is sort of this sexual normalcy. And even inside of that, what I love is the room you give it. Cause you're like, look, particularly for women, like there is a vast range of normal and you get to decide what that is for you. And that is a relief to hear. Why is that so important for women to know? What, what are you correcting? 
that we have been told and received and that we are now sort of why we are dysfunctional in our bedrooms? I'm going to try not to give the darkest possible answer and keep okay. it relatively just okay. like, so let's attribute it to a fundamental misunderstanding. Okay. The fundamental misunderstanding is that women's bodies are like men's bodies, but a little broken. So that the ways women are different from men are the ways that they need to be fixed. I see. So a lot of attention has been paid to like, how do we make women more like men? Which does a disservice to anybody who identifies as a woman to begin with, because it turns out people just vary. We're all just different from each other, but it also does a disservice to men because it says there's one thing that men are. And if you aren't this thing, then you also are broken. That's true. That's just as wrong. Yeah. So I I think the primary thing that keeps women stuck is they truly have been taught in if you know if they grew up in a religion that has these sorts of messages which lots of them do if they grow up in a school system that offers any sex education it's going to have this basic assumption that men are one way and women are another way and women are the ones who are doing it wrong and there's going to be the broad cultural narrative your doctor was probably trained in the model of women are slightly broken i know a woman whose doctor told her that it was normal to have reduced sexual desire after you give birth specifically because your body is trying to prevent you from getting pregnant again. But there's no evidence of that at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's not <laughs> biologically true. So therefore it isn't. Yeah. So, so it's, yeah. Yeah. The reason sexual desire might go away right after you give birth, there are lots of reasons. One, your body's in pain. <laughs> Like there's damage no matter how you gave birth, even if you didn't gave birth, if there is a brand new human being in your house, you are not getting adequate sleep. Your whole understanding of who you are as a person has changed. Your understanding of your relationship as you as if you have one is completely changed. Those are plenty of reasons without needing to invoke any biological hormonal whatever. Mm. Another sort of touch point that you offer is this idea that women in general turns out tend to have very little knowledge of their own bodies. And of course you support this with research. The whole book is heavily researched. And I was not surprised to hear that because I can literally put myself in that category and go, Oh, how old was I when I finally felt permission to figure out my own body and explore it and discover what pleasure really means for me. Can I ask how old were you? I mean, I, I would say I was in my thirties and I got married when I was 19. Wow. So yeah, that was a lot of years. Of that kind is of, a long time not to be connecting with your own pleasure as a birthright. It sure is. And, and I just, we weren't taught that nobody taught that. In fact, it was kind of the opposite. The whole idea of figuring out your own body at least to me in in the construct I was raised in was that that was sort of, that was shameful, literally like that. That was overtly shameful. That it wasn't, that was not a subtle suggestion. The suggestion was you touch yourself, you're dirty. Like your brain, something's going wrong up here. Let's get those thoughts wrangled. But even for me, it wasn't explicit. 
And yet I grew up with those messages. I wasn't taught specifically. So one of the like formative stories for me is when I was about 11 years old, I was at the library and my mom drove me home from the library. It was Jeep Cherokee, right in the like late eighties. Oh, sure. I must have seen the word vagina in a book, probably in a romance novel. And I asked my, like, totally with no knowledge, asked her what a vagina was. First of all, I was like 11 years old and had not heard the word vagina before. Second, I do not remember the words my mother used to answer me, but I do remember this instantaneous flush of like emotion, confusion, embarrassment, having no idea what to say or do, and this sort of like base shame. So when I got home, of course, we had a, a medical encyclopedia because that's the kind of household we had. Um, so I looked up vagina in a medical encyclopedia because I had gotten the idea that it was a body part. And the medical encyclopedia taught me what a vagina was, but my mother in that moment taught me how to feel about vaginas. And it took me until I got to college and was training to be a peer sex educator and was given the assignment, go home. Your homework is to look at your own genitals. When I approached that experience, I truly felt like I was confronting the enemy, even though I had no explicit messages in my life. Like, if you touch yourself, you're dirty or your body is gross and wrong. I just absorbed it culturally. And everything, like, all it took to undo that was looking at my genitals and realizing they're just this normal part of my body integrated into the rest of my body. And I felt all this like grief for the ways I had been sending negative messages to that part of my body without even knowing I was doing it. Oh gosh. Mm, That cuts a little close, that comment, that sense of being at war with our own body, with our desires, with what we prefer and want and don't want that somehow whatever that is, is wrong, whatever, like it's too much. It's not enough. Whatever it is, it's not the right thing. That's how it feels all the time. We've got a lot of people listening to this episode that are, we offer this to the big podcast world in addition to the book club world. And so they have not read through come as you are like the community has. And can you give like, this is a ridiculous question. Kind of a, a pleasure 101 that you posit income as you are for people listening going, well, what's what is the thing then? If it's not this, this, and this, what should I know? What should what am I getting wrong? What do I what, what would I take away from this book? So there. In other words, Emily, can you distill your book down to just like a paragraph? Can I um, summarize a hundred thousand words right. in like two minutes? That's right. That it's easy. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of can because I've been doing this for a minute. For me, what it comes down to, I learned that people not only remember it better, but also believe you more when what you say rhymes. So here's what I came up with. Pleasure is the measure. You want to assess and evaluate like if your sexuality is, quote, correct or right, or if you're doing it right, or if you're broken, or if you're normal, pleasure is the measure. It is not how often you have sex or how much you crave sex. It is not what you do, it is not who you do it with or in what room or in what position, it is whether or not you like the sex you are having. That's great. Pleasure is the measure. Whoever told us that? Well, what I think what I heard more was his pleasure is the measure. 
Absolutely. That's what I heard too. I have explicit memories of being in high school and reading Glamour magazine, which taught me that men really like it when women appear to be enjoying sex. Like when you touch your own breasts and you make a lot of noise and you let them see your body, men really like a confident woman who enjoys sex. And so what I learned was to perform pleasure so that he would experience pleasure. There was no conversation about like, not just looking or seeming like you enjoy it, but like actually noticing your internal experience and enjoying it. Like if, if you enjoy it, you're doing it right. If you are having fun, that is how you know it's good. Can you talk a little bit more about this idea of performing pleasure? Because this, as you already know, has risen to the top of when women feel safe to talk about their sex lives and what's actually happening, not what how it looks like or how it appears or how somebody else perceives it, but what's actually happening inside their bodies and minds. This idea of performing pleasure, super pervasive. And women feel trapped in it because, and I think some of the motives are altruistic sort of, like I don't want to hurt his feelings and I don't oh, absolutely. want to make him feel bad. And I, I want to enjoy it. There's because a million we know reasons. From burnout, human giver syndrome, women are raised to believe they have a moral obligation to be pretty, happy, calm, generous, and above all, attentive to the needs of others. And so when your partner is doing the thing, I don't I don't know what this gesture is, but like they're doing uh-huh. Whatever this is, he's doing it. Yeah, he's or, doing yes. that. And uh-huh. he says, do you like it? Yeah. What's the only correct answer? I love it. Mm, right? Because we don't want to hurt his feelings. And like, how lovely that we don't want to hurt his feelings. But the really difficult part is that so often we don't even know the answer to the question, do you like it? We are so busy monitoring what we look like and what he's experiencing that there's no space in our attention for what our own internal sensations are. What's the roadmap out of performing pleasure? and into actually experiencing pleasure. I think for a lot of people, it starts with solo sex. Because we were so, so many of us were so entrenched in this idea that it's the other person's experience that matters far more than ours does. Our doesn't matter for anything. Taking time to even get to know what pleasure feels like in our bodies is, first of all, a transformative and politically radical act to be like, this is my body. I get to know what it feels like. I deserve, I have the right to know what pleasure feels like in my body, to explore that. I really recommend if a person is new to masturbation, or even if they're not, to start not with, don't just go right for the genitals, but like just lie in the dark and touch different peripheral parts of your bodies, touch your arms and your feet and the backs of your knees and just get to know what your sensations are and notice what emotions may bubble up when you touch certain parts of your body because like shame gets trapped in body parts that we have been taught to feel ashamed of. A woman who read Come As You Are told me the story of watching her adult brother changing his baby daughter's diaper. So daughter's all clean. He goes to reaches for a clean diaper. And when he looks back, baby is touching her genitals. His response is, uh-uh, don't touch that. And the woman who told me this story was like, and I couldn't help wondering what he would have said if his child had a penis. 
And also, like, what if she'd been grabbing her feet? We love it. When a baby finds their feet, don't we, like, praise them and, oh, you found your feet. And, you know, this baby's not going to remember this moment so early in her life. But it's going to accumulate with countless other equally unintentional moments that teach her that the sensations of the body touching that part of her body make her bad and wrong. And there's going to be a little shadow of shame in her brain where her genitals should be. And so, like, if she were going to do an exercise where she's touching parts of her body, by the time she gets to her genitals, what she's going to run into is this shadow of shame. And it will probably get activated and she won't know where it comes from. And you never have to have insight. If a feeling happens in you and you're like, I don't know where this is coming from, that's totally fine. Insight is not required. But in the same way that we complete the stress response cycle, feelings are tunnels. You have to go through the darkness to get to the light at the end. You release whatever gets activated by touching any body part. And you allow it to move through you and out of you. You clear up that shadow and can finally connect directly with a part of your body that was always yours to touch if you wanted. And this is possible. This is what's exciting about your work. Oh, you know, it's incredibly researched, of course, but it's not just science. It's not just facts and data. It really is. It's such a wonderful, hopeful book to read because no matter really what we bring to the sexual table in terms of trauma or shame or ignorance, whatever the thing is, it is possible to move through it. And to come out on the other side. And every day, every day, no matter what, been married forever, you're single, that none of that matters, as you said earlier, that those aren't the factors that matter, even though they're the ones that we think do. But sexual freedom and liberation and pleasure is literally possible for everybody, which is exciting. I know a lot of people are listening right now thinking, oh, you don't even know what I have in my bones around sex. And I'm like, she doesn't. Let me tell you, I have heard. The worst I have heard, I will not tell you these stories because I do not want them to live in your brain, but there is a part in the book where I talk about like the library in my mind of stories that I've been told. And so many of them are stories of trauma, abuse, neglect, shame, the worst stories. I do not include any, any even in the like worst half of the stories. I don't touch any of that stuff in the book. Whatever has happened to you, I know that people have healed from an experience like that already. And I know that if you're listening to this, you can too. It takes time. I am not saying that it is easy. And a whole lot of the time, it is not fun. When you release pain, it means you have to like move through this pain. And a lot of us have spent a very long time hiding from or medicating or just tolerating an incredible, intense amount of pain and suffering that was imposed on us that we never chose for ourselves. And we know that we can just keep marching forward with that pain. And the first, like, dip your toe into processing those difficult experiences feels terrifying. I had a, a student, well, I talk about mindfulness a lot. Mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness is so good for you. So I was doing an event in. Portland, Oregon. And I had a student, former student, she had graduated, she was growing up, she had a job and everything. And she's like, you know how you kept saying mindfulness was good for you? Like I kept trying to do mindfulness and I kept, you know, I would drop my attention down in my body and I would be like, it's horrible here. 
why would anyone want to do that? Like it was sirens and flashing red lights. And eventually, after a few attempts, I was like, you know, maybe that's not normal. Huh. And she went to the doctor and it turned out she had been living with intense fibromyalgia pain for at least five years and had not even recognized that she was in pain. Wow. She was that disembodied. Yeah. I mean, because she was just marching forward. Yep. Coping. Yeah. Yep. That, that's an extreme example, but who among us doesn't understand that? It's not. That isn't close to the most extreme story that I've got. People find it more comfortable to talk about physical pain than the emotional pain that we walk around with. But I have equally intense stories about people dipping into their internal experience of being like, it is very uncomfortable down here. Maybe it's because I have a lot of stuff to process and release. And man, you don't know what well-being in your body feels like. It's it's like people who are sleep-deprived and they've been sleep-deprived for so long they don't remember mm-hmm. what it feels like to be Good rested. Example. And they finally get rest mm. and they're like, oh, is this, oh, how this everyone is what else being is alive is. Yes. This is <laughs> yeah. So you finally feel alive in your body. So especially if you're carrying around really difficult, painful stuff, it is so worth it to go through the not easy process because then you feel what it feels like to be alive in a human body. And it can actually, look, bodies are a disappointment sometimes. They are complicated and people have feelings about them, but you get this life Your body is the one and only thing you have on the day you're born that you still have with you on the day you die. And it's, it's the gift that there is of living a human life. Yeah. I love that. That is such a a beautifully generous way to think about and talk about our bodies, to treat our bodies in such a way that I always just say like, this is this, this body is my number one partner. Like this body is team gen only. Like, uh, let me, uh, let me try to keep you safe. Let me try to keep you like healthy. That's my, every signal my body gives me. pain-free. I'm for you. Like I'm for you. And so I had to learn to make peace with my body really in my forties that my body was not my enemy or just like an unfortunate container carrying my brain around that is capable of such wonderful joy and capacity. And this is how I experience the world. So I should love her. I should love her and nurture her. Yeah. Even when she's a disappointing pain in the butt. Well, yeah. Yeah. But I had a hot flash this morning. Like I am learning to cope with the perimenopause. Like my relationship with my body is changing because my body is changing. And like, as it, like every five years or so, I have to relearn to love and appreciate and value my body because my body is a different body than it was. Yes, it is. That's a really interesting conversation too that we're having, um, particularly <laughs> yeah. around sex, because sex is different decade to decade. Our because our bodies experience it differently, or pleasure because shifts. the context is different. Yeah, context is different. Exactly. Some of us have completely different partners, and we're in a totally different environment than we were. So that is sex isn't ever just the one thing. Even if it's the, with the same guy or girl for a really long time, even then. It's, it's a different a, relationship across the decades. That's right. I've been married for, you know, 11-ish years, 
And our relationship now is, it would have been unimaginable to us when we first got married. But it's actually like, I actually am one of those people, like I love my partner more every day. I feel more and more grateful for him every day because I'm in the process of writing a book about sex in a long-term relationship. And only 11 years is like not that long compared to what I visualize for us. If we're granted long life, if we're lucky enough to be old together, like I imagine, like I feel so much joyful anticipation of the ways we're going to turn into like fat little old lady and fat little old guy chasing each other around the kitchen table. I love it so much. Listen, you may just say no, Jen, but you and I talked about this before we started recording that you are working right now on, like you just mentioned, a book about long-term like sexual resiliency and health and connection. So like, can you even just give us, here are two of the factors that I've discovered in the research as these are key like ways to experience each other behaviors that kind of contribute to the long game. There's actually three characteristics of couples who sustain a strong sexual connection over the long term. Life is too short to have sex you don't like. It's really difficult to like sex if you don't like the person you're doing it with, and that includes solo sex. So good relationship, admiration, and trust. Two, they are couples who prioritize sex. They decide that it matters for themselves and for their relationship, that they stop all the other things that they are doing, and that you know, you've got kids to raise, you've got a job to go to, a school to attend, you've, you've other family members, other friends you want to spend. Sometimes you just want to take a nap. Why would you stop doing all those other important things and just like get in the bed and let your skin touch this other person's skin and roll around like puppies and lick each other? Like, why? Why would you do that? They decide that it matters. They understand what role it plays in their lives. And look, sex is not a priority for all people or at all seasons of a relationship. But for couples who sustain a strong sexual connection, they come back to sex after those seasons pass and they re-engage. So the couples who sustain a strong sexual connection are not the couples who like constantly can't wait to like dive into bed and put their tongues in each other's mouths. They're the couples who find their way back to each other after a time of separation. And then the third characteristic is that they actively process and reject other people's opinions about how they're supposed to do sex. This includes all those gender messages like human giver syndrome from burnout and all like the patriarchal masculine how to be a real man stuff that is absolutely just this giant barrier between men and people raised as boys between themselves and authentic deep pleasure. So three things, that's it. Okay. Those aren't impossible. Those are manageable. I love this. I I like how you wrangle this. The best part about it is that no one is ever done. Everyone is always in process. Gradually, I talk talk about completing the cycle a lot in both Come As You Are and in Burnout. This is that normal sex is being anywhere in the cycle of woundedness to healing and then back to woundedness and then back to healing. And anywhere you are in that process, you are never broken. There's not a linear progression from broken to normal to perfect. That is not how sex works. We are all always moving through the cycle from the wounds that were created in our bodies in the first couple few decades of our lives to the healing that we're doing for ourselves now. We'll never be done, but we'll always be growing. That's so great. You're great. 
You are so great. You have a real gift for taking a wildly disparate amount of research and making the rest of us understand it. Like you just distill it down the way that you communicate, the way that you write, the way that you teach and lead takes what can be really complex material. And you just say, here, come on, let's, let's link arms. Let's like walk our little way through it. And it's approachable and it's not, you make it not scary and you make us not feel embarrassed and you help us recognize shame for what it is and where it came from and learn to resist it and reject it. And all of this makes for better people. It makes, it makes for better relationships and better families and better parents. And it's just so consequential. Your work is so, so consequential because sex is not just a little side conversation. You know, it isn't in any given life. It's not just this little, if put it in the corner and get to it, if you get to it, it's really central to so much of the way that we feel and move through the world. And so you're the very best. I can't wait till the next book comes out. Sign me up. Sign me up as your like launch team president. Almost written. Oh man. I know how that feels. It's actually like really powerful and I'm grateful for like basically being bored with praise. It's very nice of you, but it reminds me like what my mission is and how I'm trying to achieve the change that I want to see in the world, which is that like reminding people the fact that you don't know this stuff already is not your fault. The fact that you have all these complicated feelings, not your fault. You didn't choose that, but you get to choose now. If you want to continue where you've been, if that's working for you, go for it. And if it is not, you can use this information to create any change that you want in your relationship, in your life. I love it. You can. She's not lying, you guys. This is the truth. I get emails every day, literally every day from people who are like, here is how come as you are changed my life. Which like my heart, like my heart, I can't. Yes, your heart, your heart. Thank you for sharing it with the rest of us and for being just, just exactly who you are in the world. I just find myself so drawn to you and listen to you and I believe you and I trust you because also everything that you've taught me bears out in real life. So it is functionally practical and true, but also you just make it an easier conversation to have. And so we love you. As I told you earlier, this is the single largest onboarding of new members in the Gen Hatmaker Book Club that we've had since the first month. So apparently the people have spoken and they want you to teach them about sex. And so, okay. yeah. yeah. It's a good Here's, thing that's my purpose on earth. That's right. That's right. So good thing. That's what all those fancy degrees are about. So <laughs> thanks for being on today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Good to see you. Until next time. 